We uh, continue our series on the seven signs of Jesus from the Gospel of John. And just to review a little bit, a sign is an event, almost always a miracle, even though today it isn't in our passage, but almost always a miracle, an event that points to who Jesus is and what He came to do. Sign is like a, it's an example, it's a, an expression of God's life-given power that breaks into creation through Christ and gives us a preview of what is to come. We know that our life will be full one day and all sin will be, will be destroyed and there will be no death. But until then, we get previews of His life-given power and we see them in these seven events in the book of John. It's like a flower budding in the spring, a sign of a preview, a preview of the life that is to come. So the purpose of a sign, of every sign, is to challenge us to discover who Jesus really is so we can have life through Him. John in chapter 20, verse 30 and 31 says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. We're looking at the seven that are. There are many more that He did, many more previews of life. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by that, by believing, you may have life in His name. And that is my prayer, that as we look at these signs, as we look at these stories, that we will meet Him, meet Jesus as He is, and be transformed by Him. So today we're looking at the cleansing of the temple in John chapter 2. It's not a miracle like the other signs, but it is nonetheless a dramatic event. Man, it must have, must have been a shocking experience for people who were there. And this event reveals to us what Jesus is zealous about, what He is passionate about. So let me read our passage. This is John 2, beginning in verse 13 and to the end of the chapter. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the Scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. 
But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Well, since we're dealing with sheep and oxen and pigeons in this passage, I'd like to introduce two other animals to you. I'd like to look at this passage under the two, two headings, just two. First, the fury of the lion, the fury of the lion. And secondly, the passion of the lamb, the fury of the lion and the passion of the lamb. Now, let's understand what happened here. Jesus, a law-abiding Jewish male, went up to Jerusalem to observe Passover. Nothing unusual about that. He went to the temple in Jerusalem. The temple was the center of Jewish religious life. This is where worship happened. Sacrifices were offered. Prayers were said. Nowhere else in the world could a person get closer to God than at the temple in Jerusalem. Hundreds of thousands of religious pilgrims from all over the ancient world came to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, this holiday that reminded them that they were once in Egypt. They were slaves, and then God saved them. God delivered them, and He delivered them through the sacrifice of the Lamb. As they put blood on the door frames of their houses, the destroyer passed them over and spared them and rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. When Jesus came into the temple courts, remember, everybody's thinking about this. This is a great religious celebration. Jesus comes into the temple courts, and he is furious, furious. He makes a whip, and he drives out all the oxen, the sheep, lets the pigeons fly away. He turns the tables, flips the tables of the money changers. There are coins everywhere. Can you imagine? He did it with, with such authority, such force, such anger that no one could resist him. I mean, it's an amazing thing because there are crowds of people, and here's one man clears the temple courts and nobody can do anything. There must have been such conviction in his action. There must have been such assurance that he is in authority to do that, that nobody could resist him. So he whipped the animals and the people out of the temple courts. Now, as you look at this sign, at this event... We ask ourselves, what does this reveal about who Jesus is? And as you think about Jesus in this way, furious Jesus, angry Jesus, Jesus whipping animals and people out of the temple, does that challenge who you think Jesus is? Are you surprised at this picture of Jesus? Does your perception of Jesus include his fury? What happened in the temple that day was not Jesus being meek and mild 
as most of us, I would venture to guess, as most of us think of Jesus as meek and mild. And of course, Jesus is gentle and lowly. He is. But He is also forceful and fierce. In the biblical portrayal of Jesus Christ, He is a lamb and a lion. One of the challenges of this passage is to adjust our perception of Jesus to what the Bible tells us He is. When you come to worship, as you did this morning, even as you're watching online and you're participating in this worship service, who do you expect to meet here? Are you only expecting a lamb? Or are you also expecting a lion? This is how the writer Annie Diller described it in her essay, An Expedition to the Pole. I love this quote. I've used it before, I'm sure. This is what she says. On the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of the conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea of what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may awaken, awaken someday and take offense. Or the waking God may draw us to where we can never return. Who do you expect to meet when you come to worship Him? It's part of your mind, at least part of your mind, thinking about this picture of Jesus, the furious Jesus who's clear in the temple and whipping people out of the courts of the temple. Is that part of how you see who He is? Because that is a description of what actually happened. He did this. We have to wrestle with this. And in our therapeutic age with our sentimentalist religion, we need to see the Lion of Judah taking a whip to the merchant's in the temple. However, his fury is not uncontrolled. He's not just erupting for no reason at any minor inconvenience. He is not a, a God around whom we walk on eggshells and we wonder, is he going to be angry with me if I say this or if I do that? No, his fury is an expression of his zeal. The anger of Jesus reveals what he cares about the most, what he is zealous for. This violent action in the temple is the boiling over of his holy passion. So what is he passionate about? Well, the disciples knew. Isn't it interesting that although they didn't get everything right, they didn't put everything together, we know that even after the resurrection, they're still putting pieces together. But right at that time, they knew what was happening because they remembered a verse from the Old Testament. 
They recalled a verse from Psalm 69. Zeal for your house will consume me. Psalm 69 is Psalm of David, King David. And David laments being persecuted and oppressed and rejected by others because of his faithfulness to the covenant with God, and particularly for his commitment to temple worship, his love of worship in the temple, in the tabernacle. He's being persecuted and rejected for that. And so David's zeal was for true worship of God and a deep relationship with him even though others disagreed with him and, and, and persecuted him. And so this is what Jesus is passionate about. He is furious because in the one place on earth where he could be expected to find true worship, he found something else. And he took a whip to it. The lion roared and attacked what he saw as a threat to worship, as a threat to a relationship with God, because he was zealous for it. He was passionate to see people worship his father. And so he goes to the temple, to his father's house, where everything is set up to promote this worship, to make this worship happen, to encourage people into a relationship with God. And he gets there, he doesn't see it. Worship is not happening. Now, what did he see that made him so angry? After all, there's lots of religious people doing all sorts of religious things in the temple in that day. I think he saw two problems with what was happening at the temple. I think that's what made him so angry. Number one, the father's house became the children's house. He saw that the father's house became the children's house. Let me show you what I mean. In verse 16, Jesus indicts the money changers and the sellers of animals. And this is what he tells them. He says, do not make my father's house a house of trade. In other words, don't make a place of worship into a marketplace. They made the temple designed for worship into something else, into a place of commerce. The problem isn't with commerce. The problem is that that place was designated for worship. Now, I need to explain what the merchants were doing. Imagine you are a religious pilgrim. You are a Jewish person that lives in Italy or in Egypt or in Syria. Passover comes around, and you say, I'm going to make my pilgrimage. I need to make a sacrifice in the temple. I need to offer my tax to the temple. And so you make this trip. And of course, you're not going to bring an ox with you. You're not going to bring a sheep with you from Egypt. So you're thinking, I'll get there, and I'll buy the right animal inspected by the temple authorities, and it can be offered there, right there in the temple. So I'll just buy that. So you bring your money. And, of course, you bring whatever money you use where you live. And so people are bringing all sorts of currency to Jerusalem. But, of course, the temple authorities don't want all sorts of currency to be put in their treasuries. They want certain kind of currency. They want specific kind of silver shekel. Each man was supposed to give a half shekel of tax a year. Often two men would go in on one shekel. 
And so you would exchange whatever money you brought with you, whatever rate they would offer to you, you would exchange it for a fee, of course, to the merchants, but you would exchange it to the right kind of silver to be offered in the temple. Now, when you think about this, what the merchants were doing, both the sellers of animals and the money changers, was a great service to many worshipers. Without them, this would have been complete chaos. People trying to get animals, people trying to offer all sorts of currency. And so they stepped in and they said, we can help with that. Now, they started out pretty far from the temple, Mount Olive. They were there on the slopes, and people could go and get their animal and then lead the animal to the temple. They could exchange their money and bring their money to the temple. None of that was originally happening anywhere near the temple. But with time, you thought, well, this would be convenient if we can do it right there. I don't need to drag my sheep all through the streets of Jerusalem. I can just get it right there, inspect it right there, offer it right there, bring my money that I had just exchanged right directly to the temple. The problem with this issue is the location. The problem is that all those helpful services now were brought right into the temple, right into the courts of the temple. So when Jesus comes into the courts of the temple expecting worship to be happening there, expecting prayers to be happening there, expecting devotion what he sees is commercial transactions. Yes, they were providing a service to the worshipers. But by doing it right where worship was supposed to take place, they actually prevented worship from happening. They obscured the whole point of the temple by bringing the animals and the money-changing tables into it. Listen to D.A. Carson who comments on this text. He says, Jesus' complaint is not that they are guilty of sharp business practices and should therefore reform their ethical life, but that they should not be in the temple area at all. How dare you turn my father's house into a market, he exclaims. Instead of solemn dignity and murmur of prayer, there is the bellowing of cattle and the bleeding of sheep Instead of brokenness and contrition, holy adoration and prolonged petition, there is noisy commerce. Friends, there is a warning here for the contemporary church. Sometimes in our desire to accommodate worshipers, perhaps out of great desire for them to meet God, we set up barriers in the very experience we want them to have. In our desire to invite and include, we make our services more about the people than about God. Just like some families where you come into a house and you realize children rule this house. It is no longer the parents' house. Just like that, Jesus came to his father's house and he saw the children in charge. And he saw that what was done was done for the children and not for the father. And sometimes, in our experience too, what started as a service to worshipers 
became an obstacle to worship. Now, we have seen this dynamic with some church movements and ministries, ministries and some of the recent scandals that we have witnessed. Organizations that began as fresh, innovative, effective ways to reach people ended up covering up awful evil and bringing shame to the world just so they can exist, just so they can keep going. So what they were originally formed to do, the very thing that they were about, the glory of God and people being introduced to this real God and people being built up, now those same practices resulted in shame because they were not checked with worship, because it became about the children more than it is about the Father. Our passage ends with the statement in verses 24 and 25 that Jesus knows all people, and that He knows what's in our hearts. And just as He saw greed replacing love and hypocrisy replacing worship in Jerusalem, He sees our intentions too. Is our participation in worship about us, or is it about God? Is it nothing more than a religious therapy session? Or is it a real encounter with the living God? Is it a political rally? Or is it bowing to the King of Kings? Is it a feel-good sing-along? Or is it a full-throated praise to the thrice-holy God? It is amazing how many religious people have nothing to do with God. Even in our passage, when the Jewish leaders demand Jesus to give them another sign to prove his authority, I mean, it's an amazing thing. He just cleared the temple with great authority. Nobody can stop him. And they come to him and say, what else are you going to do to prove that you have authority? And by that very question, they reject the very one who the temple was built for. They reject the Lord because of their attachment to the stones of the temple complex. That's the first problem. The father's house became the children's house. The second problem Jesus saw was that the father's house became a house only for some children. Only for some children. Not only the merchants were hindering worship for everyone, but they were also particularly restricting the Gentiles from worship. Now you see, there was a large court that was specifically designed to include other people, non-Jews, who maybe are not as familiar with the God of Israel. They were supposed to to come there. They're supposed to hear about the God of Israel. They're supposed to pray to Him. They were supposed to meet Him there. And yet this is the very place where the money changers and the animal sellers set up their shop. So imagine a Gentile comes to the temple. Maybe they had heard about this God of Israel from their neighbor in Egypt. They come to Jerusalem, 
Everybody tells them, you can't go into those places in the temple. This is only for the Jews, but this place is for you. And they get to that place that people told them is designed specifically for them. And what do they find? Animals scrapping around all over the place. That is the place that God had designated for them to meet God. And yet, that very place is used for other Jews to make it more convenient for other Jews. The fact that that space was part of the layout of the temple complex signified God's desire to include all nations, to draw all peoples to himself. But in Jesus' day, the temple became a national stronghold designed to accommodate one kind of people and resistant to include others. There is a parallel to the modern church here, too. If you're around church growth circles and church planting circles, you would often hear that a church must have a target demographic. Do the studies in your community, figure out who lives here, and then pick a group. Pick somebody that you feel you can relate to, somebody that you can provide services for, somebody who would fit in your church. And then organize your space, choose music, set up ministries to accommodate this group, your target audience. Because we are told by the experts, this is how you can effectively grow your church. Because if you can figure out how to reach this group of people, and if there are many of them in your community, and you do it really well, then you'll get a bunch of them. And so it could be young families or young single people or children or teenagers or people of a certain ethnic group or even race or economic class or political ideology, and you can fine-tune your worship service to them. And of course, every church should serve the people in it, of course. You are the church, and so the kind of music we do, right, the kind of programs we run, is often based in this group, these people. But whenever we focus on one group, whenever a church decides to serve a particular kind of people, Others are excluded, automatically, implicitly are excluded. If we are not consciously thinking about people who are not here and do things for them even if they are not here, we are excluding them. We have to be intentionally thinking about our community, this church community, as open to others, as welcoming others, as longing to bring them in. And so we make room, we make space, we start programs, we start ministries, we choose music that will allow them to come in. And there are many kinds of groups out there. There are many kinds of people out there. All people are made in God's image and are designed to be in a relationship with God. And every church must reflect this evangelistic inclusivity. 
The Oxford mathematician and Christian apologist John Lennox tells a story of growing up in Northern Ireland where one had to choose a side in the violent sectarian conflict. His father, a Christian, resolved to be a non-sectarian Christian, and he hired both Catholics and Protestants to work in his store. He believed that everyone was made in God's image, and so he applied that in his business practices. And his store was bombed for it. And his son, John's brother, almost died. He was almost killed by that. When Jesus saw the merchants in the court of the Gentiles, he was furious. He was furious. He was so angry. Because in his father's house, in his father's house, he knew the father. In his father's house, all children were to be welcome. All children. Not just some. And this father's son was willing to die to see it happen. And this brings us to the last part of the sermon, where I'd like us to consider the passion of the Lamb. Now look with me at the conversation that took place right after the cleansing of the temple. This is where Jesus reveals his zeal, his passion for true worship, and where that passion would lead him. Verses 18 and following. The Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered what he had said that he had said this, and they believed the Scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Not until after the death and resurrection of Jesus did his disciples really grasp what he was saying that day in the temple. Jesus was zealous for true worship. He was passionate for all people to have access to the Father. And that zeal consumed him. That passion destroyed him. True zeal allows and even even calls for sacrifice. To be zealous for something means to live for it and possibly to die for it. I just read an interview with a new recruit in the Ukrainian army, still in his teens, preparing to fight just after three days of basic training. Here's a kid. Here's a gun. In three days, you're on the front lines. And he was asked, are you, are you afraid? Are you scared? And he said, he said, yeah, every human being is scared. And deep down in my soul, I am scared. So what, what motivates him? Why would he do that? Why would he enlist? Because of the zeal for his country. That passion for his country makes him live for it and potentially die for it. So Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He's not talking about the temple in Jerusalem that was going to be destroyed by the Romans just several decades later. He's talking about himself. This is an incredible statement. Jesus says, I will build a new temple where true worship will go unhindered by human sin. 
I will build a temple for all nations. And the temple is Jesus himself. In the person of Jesus, humanity finds the meeting place with God. This is what the temple is. The temple is a meeting place between people and God. A place to speak to him and to hear from him. A place to be right with God. And Jesus says, I am that temple. And once this temple is destroyed in three days, I will raise it up again. Through his death and resurrection, many, many people find a welcome to the throne of mercy. Jesus not only came to the temple and attempted to fix it or to to cleanse it, he became the temple. And this new temple is cleansed by his own blood. Now remember, when Jesus was tried, he was accused of blasphemy against the temple. Remember, they brought it up. He said that he was going to destroy the temple. And he was whipped for it. He was whipped. He who drove the inferior, insufficient animal sacrifices out of the temple courts himself became a sacrifice. He was whipped and pushed and kicked toward the cross, not away from the meeting place of God, but toward it. And on that cross outside the city, within earshot of the sheep bleeding and the oxen lowing and the coins jingling and clinking, Jesus became the final sacrifice. He offered himself as a single sacrifice for sins to perfect all those who trust him. And of course, you remember that when Jesus died, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And now not just the outer courts became available for the worshipers as when he drove out the animals, but the holiest place the holy of holy, the mercy seat, the sacred place of God's presence where God promised to meet with his people. Over the mercy seat, God promised that he will speak to his people and he will meet with them there. That place, that kind of relationship, that kind of intimacy became available to all who believe. And on the third day, The lamb slain for our sins rose from death and is now, now the temple of God for all who believe. As Augustine said, Jesus endured death as a lamb, but he devoured it as a lion. And now by faith in this lion lamb, who has in his fury destroyed sin and death, we are welcomed into our relationship with God and we will worship Him forever. The Bible ends on the description of the new heaven and the new earth. This beautiful, renewed place where everything is right, where we are promised a life of meaningful work and, and deep worship and experience of unhindered beauty, where there is no death, where there is no harm of any sort, there is no regrets, there are no tears, 
When John the seer, John the apostle, describes that renewed creation, our forever home, he says, and I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Because all barriers have been removed. And now there is no place in the new creation where we meet God. Everything, everywhere is that place. Because He is everywhere, and the Lamb is our temple. So let me end by this exhortation. Have you seen the fury of the lion and the passion of the lamb? Do you believe in the crucified and risen Savior? That is the response that Jesus expects from those who have seen his signs, who saw him as he is, the furious lion and yet the compassionate lamb. Do you believe in him? And do you have life through him? Do you belong in the new creation where the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb?